Alex. Hello, Brent. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm so pleased to be in studio with you. Good, yeah. It's such a treat for us to be in studio again. End of a long week, though. I think it's been a really magical week, if you think about all of the different interactions we've had with, with the crew. It's been a great, great week. Really memorable. It's been one of those where you've put people, not just voices to faces, but people to faces and voices. Like you picked up a little bit more of the depth that each of these individuals have. Yeah, we heard Joe do some darkness impressions, for example. <laughs> that was lovely. What Elle, else? Elle told us a bit more of her life history, and I found out that Cheese is a radical dude. Yeah, he's got these like really deep bits of knowledge in so many different um, spheres. He, he is, and when I say radical dude, I mean that he is the life and soul of a party. He'll just keep gently chugging away on the grill, and he'll come inside and just be gently grooving away to whatever's on the, the sound system. I find him to be such a generous guy in the sense that he'll put his time towards trying to make the whole group feel really great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what a gift. And everybody else had, had, of course, their gifts to make this whole and dynamic. of course, you're a fantastic chef too. Oh, well, come on. That, uh, what was it, egg something with vegetables that you made on Tuesday? We did do a bit of a brunch with, uh, it was an omelette with a whole bunch of vegetables, maybe some caramelized onions and such. And a little bit of chipotle sauce on the top. Mm-hmm. That was great. So that's uh, that's kind of what brunch with Brent is kind of like. Uh, just delicious, isn't it? Just delicious. Just delicious. That's the tagline. <laughs> um, so I want to um, ask you a few questions. We've developed a little bit of a relationship um, online. Uh, we met here at Linux Fest Northwest. Mm-hmm. This past one. In April. It was a treat. We got to sit down together and do um, LUP that Tuesday. Right, yeah. Each of us sitting in one of those red chairs. Yeah, and, and they're still kind of in one piece. <laughs> How was that experience for you? I have been a fan of JB for years. And so for me, it was a semi-religious experience to sit in the studio wow. listening to the theme music and Chris doing his thing and everything. Might sound a bit uh, over the top to uh, some other people, but Chris has been a huge part of my life, and uh, I owe quite a lot of my ability to talk authoritatively on subjects to the whole JB network. And you know, job interviews and stuff like that, I can leverage a lot of the discussions I've heard in Coda over the years between him and Michael, uh, and obviously all the Linux-related stuff. It just really helps you form an opinion on on stuff, and for me. I remember I was sat in that chair over there, uh, looking out the window, just thinking, this is this is really cool. This is actually happening right now. Yeah, because the other thing was I emigrated last year. And part of the reason for doing that was to improve my quality of life and be able to come and do some of these sorts of things. You know, a, a six-hour flight from Raleigh is very different to an 11, 10, 11-hour flight from London. And huge difference in time change. Correct, yeah. Three hours versus eight I think that experience that you just described is not dissimilar to a lot of other community members' um, experiences. Like I, I for one, relate to that. Um, having watched, watched, I said watched JB. Remember that? Yeah. Linux Action Show was a big part of my life as well and was a stem for a lot of um, projects that I dove into as experiments. And I imagine that's much the same for you. When did you get into JB? You know, I, I don't know if I could remember a specific year, but I would say probably around, um, hmm, I'm going to say it was likely around 2011, 2010, 2011, something like that. I'm going to do a quick bit of Google sleuthing here, but mine was the PF Sense last episode. 
So for me, I found JB on, um, I don't know if you remember this. Um, it was a software called Miro that was available for Linux. It was an audio, oh. audio like, that's what was wrong with the piece of software for me, actually, is I can never really figure out what it was trying to accomplish, but it had a, a podcast um, directory built in and also it would play music and, and sort of stream a whole bunch of videos from different sources. And uh, from that podcast directory, I found basically Linux action show because um, it was it ranked pretty high. So you're you're one of these that likes to make their life more difficult by using the slightly less than focused open source. This version. is more like I was curious about it, installed it, poked okay. around, found something cool, used it for a week and then didn't use it ever again um, just yeah. because it didn't fit sort of what I was looking for. But um, but it certainly gave me a gift of discovering Linux Action Show and the whole network and a bunch of people online. Yeah. Um, for you, did you figure out what year that was? 2013. 2013. Okay. Yeah. So actually around the same time. Um, mm-hmm. And now you're sitting in the studio. It's crazy. Right? And so am I. Um, it's cray cray. But I imagine a whole lot of community members have... A, a similar experience in that, you know, they listen to the show weekly. We make connections with the people that we're hearing and we make imaginations of what, what is going on here too. But I'll tell you the strangest thing is that when I met Chris in April, so I met him at Texas Linux Fest last year for the first time in person. And in April, obviously at a fest, there are hundreds of people hanging around. That first Friday we came to the studio, I don't think you were here quite yet because you came a bit later. Yeah, yeah that's it. But uh, that Friday, I flew in from Raleigh and landed about 10 or 11 in the morning. Got to the studio for the first time, and there was 50 people here. <laughs> okay, maybe 25, but there was a lot it of people. It feels like 50, doesn't there it? There was a lot of people. And then Popey and Wimpy showed up, and Noah was here, and all of these talking heads that you've listened to for so long, you can finally meet them. And it turns out Wimpy mm-hmm. lives three miles from where I grew up. <laughs> the same really? town, yeah. He what lives uh, you know, a couple of streets over from my first girlfriend's house. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's, that's such a small world. You have to go to the other side of the world to meet someone who's in your backyard. Apparently so. Interesting. That's how the internet works, isn't it? Yeah. But I'll tell you, uh, the point I was going to make that I rambled and didn't, uh, is that it's a one-way relationship. I mm. felt like I knew Chris. I felt like I knew Popey. I knew Joe because I'd listened to these guys for so long. And yet, that first few weeks of talking to them and certainly over that weekend it was it was obvious it wasn't a two-way like you knew nothing about me yeah there's like this imbalance of of familiarity almost that must be really hard for uh, hosts of a, a thing like this to deal with especially i imagine you know they're, they're just human beings too and they want to grow their relationships but it's impossible to right. connect with everyone who's out there uh and yet i found everyone around the network and around our JB community to be just extremely generous, both with their time and their patience and their, you know, um, discussions and all that. I have a hundred percent more patience for somebody who has become a member of the community because they're curious Mm. instead of someone that just wants to get into something to make money or just because they can't be bothered to Google something or, uh, and, and the Linux community really is what, keeps me around i went to fosdem in 2015 i think 2014 it was a while ago uh and i remember walking into this if you've never been to fosdem by the way it's a an enormous 5000 plus 
open source conference, free and open source conference in Brussels in Belgium. And it's in February, so the weather's always terrible. But there was a free waffle stand in the in the courtyard in the middle. I just, I've got this picture of me with a waffle wrapped up to the gunnels because it was so <laughs> cold and wet. But it was at that conference I had a bit of a life-changing experience, really, where I was in a, like at a conference, you have the, the room full of all the vendors. I use vendors in inverted commas. Nextcloud were there and OpenSUSE were there and Ubuntu were there. And it, it just dawned on me that these people in front of me are these companies, are these brands. Literally. That guy wrote Nextcloud. This one did something for Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was, but and it was just you think to yourself, well, if, if I was if I was doing this with proprietary software, Windows, for example, there's no way I get to meet the guy that wrote some esoteric part of the kernel. Of course. I also went to a fascinating talk that year where I learned all about how the uh, Linux kernel container isolation works. So super technical stuff. Yeah. And it was delivered by one of the kernel maintainers himself. Who would likely know the topic. Right? Yeah. And he had a little bow tie on. I forget his name, but it is still to this day the best talk I've ever been to. Wow. And what made it the best talk? Because typically, really technical talks can can feel kind of dry and 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 really niche. Because it wasn't dry. Because I I, I hung in every word, and I came out and I felt wiser. Okay, so this talk was perfectly suited for you. Um, I, you touch on something there that um, I think is really key, and and I've noticed is just continuing to come up with everybody I talk to, which is curiosity. Um, and that is what brought you into that lecture room to hear him talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine it's also what brought you to Linux in the first place and starting Linux server IO. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know how much you want to hear of that, but <laughs> there's some history there, isn't there? Yeah, really <laughs> yeah. good stuff. So I was working in the Apple store. This was, um, it, it started off as a part-time job when I was a student. When I was on the sales side of things. And then, you know, I quickly realized that i like like to fix stuff more technical stuff so i ended up on the genius bar swapping and repairing iphones and then macbooks and everything else and this is before so i was working for apple before the iphone and before the ipad wow so you saw the shift right yeah i saw steve jobs influence dilute as the company became more mainstream as he died of course sadly Mm -hmm. his uh influence and tim cook's operational focus took over a company and as such they they seem to lose the focus on their people and their core values i noticed at the same time the apple retail side actually had this thing called um the credo this is what we live by it was a to be honest with you it was a bunch of bs in a little card that you have around your your neck in a lanyard <laughs> <All right. laughs> you know like our soul is our people that kind of thing our right. soul is our passion is our people or something okay you know proper american I suppose it was trying to be anti-corporate, but it always came across to me as just a whole bunch of BS. Maybe I'm too cynical for it. Anyway, uh, I I got to a point where there's only so many iPhones you can swap. There's only so many MacBook top cases you can repair. You run into the same problems day in, day out. Yeah, and it's when you've reset the same lady's iCloud password five times in a 10-minute appointment, you want to stab oh. your eyeballs out with a compass. <laughs> 
I'm so sorry. I began to look for, you know, something else to do with, with my um, tech kind of focus. And there was a post on the Unraid forums, which I was starting to get into like storage and self-hosting at that kind of point um, because I'd had a hard drive fail. I lost a, a one and a half terabytes worth of stuff. That's one way to learn a whole bunch of lessons. You and a learn whole very bunch quickly that yeah. once it's gone, it's gone. Wow. Once is none. That's a, a good favorite saying of mine. It's unfortunate. Everyone needs to have that experience. Yeah. Because it, it, it really demonstrates why being proactive and backups are so important. Well, you're a photographer. I was telling mm-hmm. you the other day that one of, one of my, um, I don't want to say favorite, but like one of the stories that sticks in my mind from my time at Apple was I was doing a, a pretty routine Genius Bar appointment. Lady turns up, her MacBook, hard drive, pick it up. All you can hear is... I, I know exactly what that is. <laughs> the hard drive's done. It's toast. Yeah. And you, you just look the, you look the lady square in the eye and say, I'm really sorry, but the hard drive's failed. Do you have a backup? No. That question makes some people's hearts drop. And I saw her face drop. And I was like, there's something on this computer that oh. she needs. And I said, so what's on the computer that you need? And she went, well, I'm a wedding photographer. And there are two oh, clients no. worth of pictures on this laptop. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. And I felt myself, because I, I do a bit of photography too. I was still very, very new then. But it was potentially a future career path for Alex. Right. right. I was thinking maybe I could, because there's a couple of guys in the store did weddings and I was following them and trying to, so I was like, you know, you are in the position I potentially want to be in. So you're on a bit of a pedestal as far as I'm concerned. And you can't even back up your stuff. What are you doing? You're not a professional. Wow. This is someone's life memories that you've potentially lost it. So we ended up taking her through. Um, I, I went through this range of emotions from trying to be empathetic to start with to being almost angry with her for screwing up someone's wedding pictures. Right. I, I suppose your empathy switched a little bit. You had an empathy for her at first because obviously yeah. having a bummed out computer is no fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but then quickly an empathy for the clients also i just got married a couple of years previously so, so oh wow wedding, so it hit home <laughs> wedding for me was still very very fresh right so yeah in the end we ended up talking her through like data recovery services and all that kind of stuff but it's the only thing you can do at that point right yeah and that, that wasn't a, a terribly uncommon occurrence that people lost data and you had to take them through that kind of stuff and so how did that experience and your own data loss inspire sort of the growth for you so after that one and a half terabyte uh seagate spindle lock Ouch. drive failed on me and I lost a, a, a bit of data. I, I went down this rabbit hole of looking at Drobos and Synologies. I actually bought a Synology, um, had it going and then realized, because they had this app store built in and I'm like, ooh, this is this looks fun. Because mm-hmm. it's basically just a little Linux computer with, uh, I think, a gigabyte or maybe even 5, 12 megs of RAM. So it's not a lot. Yeah, I know the QNAP servers are similar. Right? And you look in the app store and you see Plex and you see... Uh, you know, Air Sonic or Subsonic, I think it was back then. Um, and all these different apps that you can run with the data that, you, you know, the the photos that I have stored, I could access them on my phone from anywhere. And this was way before like Google Photos or anything. So I'm like, oh, I could self-host a lot of this stuff. This is interesting. So rabbit hole Alex, Biosystemology, realizes that 512 megabytes of RAM is enough to run essentially a potato, and that's it. Um, I mean, the performance of the CPU is terrible because it was one of the original Atom CPUs. Right. And Could you even get full throughput no. on that thing? No, never. No. So then you think, well, 
what if I built it myself? I've built a PC before. I looked at Unraid. I looked at FreeNAS. And there was a few things uh, that made me choose Unraid in the end. Uh, one was it had a GUI and I wasn't, I mean, FreeNAS had a GUI too, but uh, the Unraid GUI was nice because it let me select each drive one by one. It still had its own readable file system. Whereas FreeNAS, I had to learn all this complicated stuff about VDEVs and pools and ECC memory and all this kind of stuff that, you know, I was way too inexperienced to understand. And FreeNAS is BSD-based, right? So yeah, that didn't bother me at that no. point. I, I wasn't a Linux zealot at all by that okay. point. I mean, I am a little bit now. Am I? I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> all right, that's a different thing. Because I run a MacBook as my daily driver. Mm-hmm. Because I still use Adobe, I still use Fusion 360 and some video games. So it has a bunch of tools you you yeah. And Mac is the least worst option because it runs all of those Adobe suites as well as having a decent style Unix shell. Okay, yeah. For someone like you, I'd imagine that's yeah quite important. Yeah, I do a lot of um, DevOpsy type stuff, so I need to have a decent SSH connection to. I mean, my laptop primarily is an SSH terminal, but. Windows just doesn't... I mean, I know there's WSL now and stuff, but... But, I mean, you've put together these tools a while ago. Um, yeah, like I mean... you've been that, on Mac for a little while now. That MacBook is from 2015. There you go. So far as I'm concerned, the MacBook Pro line is currently dead. Mm, ouch. Till they fix that keyboard. So let's go back to um, the hard drives and how you started self-hosting your stuff. So, yeah, um, I ended up building this Unraid box and... Then thinking, well, how all these apps in the Synology App Store, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Unraid used this thing called plugins back then. And the way Unraid works is is still, I find, bizarre. Uh, but it works. I mean, it's, it's a great way to ship a product for less technical people. So what they do is they wrap up the kernel and the, and the bootloader into this BZ root and BZ image uh, thing. And you boot from a USB drive. And in order to upgrade your kernel or any package in the system, you need to rebuild a whole new BZ route. Now, for most people, they just download that from Lime Technology, and that's fine. Me, I was getting a bit more inquisitive. I wanted to do stuff like GPU pass-through. So what this means is I uh, have a single box. Because remember, I was only working in retail. I wasn't earning a lot of money at all. Um, and my wife was uh, learning to be a teacher, training to be a teacher at that point. So we were living off retail income only at this point um so all my all of my tech had to work really hard for a living my each each hard drive each graphics card each cpu had to have a a very specific purpose else i'd sell it to pay for something else and what attracted me to pcr pass-through in the first place was that i could have this unraid server which i already owned running and then stick a graphics card in it and suddenly I have a whole desktop computer. Mm-hmm. I don't need my desktop PC as well as my server, because by this point I had a desktop. I've always been a desktop guy at home, and then when I'm traveling I have a laptop and then a server as well. So I generally have three uh, three systems. So before that point, it was nice for you to have them sort of in their own little silos, but at this point you've realized that, oh, maybe there's some hybrids possible well, here? Well, I saw it as a way to save money. Oh, fair enough. Originally, I, I yeah. could take the graphics card out of my desktop system upstairs and shove it into my server downstairs and then sell the desktop and, and buy something else with that money. I don't you know. were saying pragmatic, right? Yeah. That's pretty yeah. pragmatic. 
uh, and then that was it. That for me was like a red rag to a bull. Like I had to learn how to compile custom kernels. Um, it was a wonderful man called, uh, he went by several different names on the Unraid forums. Yeah, D Deeds, Grumpy But Fun, School Bus Driver. He had a bit of a falling out with the Unraid developers at one point. All right. Basically because he was telling them how great their product wasn't and making a public deal out of it. It was a bit, it was a bit much at times, but I owe an awful lot to that guy because he sat with me on TeamViewer for hour after hour talking me through how to compile things, how the Arch uh, user repository worked, how the Zen uh, hypervisor worked, all this stuff that now I take for granted. Yeah, but you really had a mentor in that person. I don't know where he is now. I think he lives in Atlanta. Okay. We've never met. Wow. He is a consultant by trade, I think, and I know his name is Stephen, but that's it. Stephen in Atlanta, if you're hearing this. (laughs) Yeah, if you are. Honestly, I owe, genuinely owe this phase of my life to him. Wow. So then, um, uh, unfortunately, my grandma passed away. This might seem a bit tangential, but there is a point. Um, And I was getting so interested in all this stuff that I was looking around at CS degrees, computer science degrees. We'd just moved to a new town. My wife's teacher training had finished. I'd changed Apple stores. There was a whole snafu with um, applying for a position that uh, they told me I couldn't apply for when I moved, like a managerial position, because we're not uh, recruiting for that just yet. I arrive and there's a manager already in the job that I thought I might get. Yeah, so ouch. I was like, yeah, Apple's done for me. Mm-hmm. I was on the phone to my mum one evening and uh, I actually just wrote a post on my blog about all my desks that I've built over the years. And I, I got emotional looking at one picture because I distinctly remembered this phone call with my mum. And she was saying, so your grandma's just left you £5,000 as an inheritance. Obviously, it's a difficult time, but have you considered that the UEA, the University of East Anglia in Norwich, which is where we just moved to, have a master's computer science course for which the fees are exactly five grand? I'm not, I'm, I don't necessarily believe in fate, but that's serendipitous, isn't it? There are some things in this world that line up for no particular reason that yeah. just seemed too yep. big, good to be true and and that money hit my bank balance about two weeks after i started the course so i was able to just go and pay it in full no debt nothing and then it was a gift from there or what well i learned to program i learned all about databases and generally speaking uh this is about the time i found jb and sounds like a perfect time yeah um in the, I remember I was procrastinating. Instead of writing my dissertation, I was procrastinating, um, trying to do some some research, I suppose, for the dissertation, which was automated development environments. Uh, that was the dissertation I did in the end. So I did like a comparison of all the different Linux desktops and a bunch of stuff. Like uh, Linux was just like I was like a sponge. Everything related to Linux, I just wanted to pick it up. And then a friend of mine, Lonix, uh, who is based uh, out of Norway, he and I. Um, because I've been writing about all my uh, custom kernel compilation stuff on my personal blog, blog.ktz.me, um, for the longest time. Um, that guy, Lonix, and I got together, and we we discovered Docker together. And Docker was like version 0.3 or 0.4 at this point. And I honestly thought he was just jumping on the next cool bandwagon. I thought Docker was... Like it was a phase or something? Yeah, I, w- I had my VMs set up and it was great. And I don't know. 
by the time I finally saw the light, he'd been badgering me for a couple of months. That was all. Um, but there was this one moment where I reloaded my server and recreated the Docker containers from scratch and had all of my applications back up and running in under five minutes. I was like, holy crap, that's it. I'm, I'm in. This is amazing. It's a new paradigm, isn't it? Because you separate the applications from their data. So Plex didn't need to go and re-index all of my media. It was already still there, all of the databases and stuff. And it was wonderful, really wonderful. So I discovered Docker in that, in that period uh, and then ended up getting a job as a Python developer. But this was a, a startup in Norwich, this company, doing like Bluetooth beacons and stuff. Um, it was great of them to give me a job, to be honest. I don't know why they did. <laughs> I was, uh, I mean, I was hired as a developer, but I am not a developer. So what did you end up doing with most of your time there? <laughs> Learning to develop. Right. <laughs> uh, however, it became pretty clear to me that Python's virtual environments were kind of a pain in the ass. So I ended up using Docker and mucking around with Jenkins for a bit to try and automate some of the build pipelines at this company, who then decided to buy another company which they then couldn't afford so this is how it went um this was a really difficult period so i did a, a three-month probation past that this was december i passed it the acquisition closed i think around the new year second week of january catherine and i buy a new house a week after that they say oh uh, we couldn't afford the acquisition so we're making layoffs and so just 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 soak that up for a minute. I've my heart on, just sunk. <laughs> I've landed on my feet. I have this amazing job as a developer. This is career change from retail into being a developer has gone well. I'm doing good, and then suddenly, massive ton of bricks. Just after we bought a new house, and something you can't control. No, not it's... at all. In the end, uh, they made us all interview for our jobs and stuff like that, and I, I didn't get made redundant. But I'd already put my CV out there to several other places. Wise. And I, I ended up getting a job in Cambridge, which is an hour's drive. And this for me is where my real relationship with JB began. Oh, because you started commuting a bit. Because I had 10 plus hours of commute yeah. time each week. And TechSnap and uh, Chris and Alan, you know, uh, Alan's not necessarily the most interesting fellow to listen to. He's wonderfully opinionated and um, smart and, and has this wealth of knowledge is a little dry at times anyway i didn't care because i was listening to everything that i could get my hands on because being in a car for 10 plus hours a week is really boring um so this job in cambridge was uh, as a devops engineer for a, a company in england called wellpaying and i was hired as their first devops guy to optimize their release process because i could talk authoritatively about this uh jenkins python docker build pipeline i'd just done at the previous company they were like oh that sounds amazing we want that so this was way more in your alley than yeah than the I, I, I didn't yeah. realize it but I, I am actually an infrastructure guy okay you didn't realize it that's awesome i didn't realize it until <laughs> i'd got that job at WorldPay, and that was what i was doing i was like yeah actually i don't being a developer was actually kind of boring it was hard hard work but also kind of boring because Yes, the problems you solve are kind of different, but it's all just code. It's all your day. One day blends into the next very quickly. And for some people, that's perfect. 
for me no i need i need to have relatively easily not easily achievable but i need to have objectives which are build a uh, environment to do x and i will go hammer and tongs at that and then get it done and then i'll spend the next couple of months kind of pseudo promoting it to say look at all this cool stuff i've done and that just seemed to work really well for my career that sort of three to six month cycle of nice. following a technology focusing and doubling down really hard on it doing something cool with it but then promoting it as well and i think a lot of people miss out on that kind of self-promotion factor which is you know you've you've i guess it's a Something I picked up in the Steve Jobs biography, like everything around you is built by people. And when you realize that, you kind of can change. Like you're, you just don't accept your reality, change it and make it what you want. And so if you can see an opportunity to build a system that means your job is more secure, do that. Because that's one of the things people say a lot about DevOps is that you're automating yourself out of a job. But in my experience, what I found is that by being the guy that writes the automation, I'm always in demand, which is great. I imagine once you solve a problem, there's a new problem to solve always. 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 Mm -hmm. So I was working in Cambridge at this point. The release optimization program was going really well, getting a lot of attention with the higher ups. We were doing some really cool stuff, cutting edge stuff. I mean, Docker wasn't even 1.0 by this point, and... Here I am telling them they can cut their release time from two days to multiple times a day release and stuff. So it's exactly what management want to hear. So we then tried to take uh, Docker into production. And with that came a whole shopping list of different things you had to implement, like logging, monitoring, alerting. It meant upgrading the RHEL systems from RHEL 5 to RHEL 7 to get a modern enough kernel to support containers, a bunch of stuff. They turned around to me and said, all right, here's that. Here's a job offer to do that and implement that. But you have to move to London. Oh. And I'm like, okay, I could do that. During that 18 months where I worked in Cambridge, Catherine and I had been renovating this house that we just bought, remember? We took it back to bare plaster. Uh, in almost every room, we completely redid all the bathrooms. I did a lot of the work myself. That's a project in its own, right? Oh, man. And it meant parting. Moving to London meant parting with that project. And I still regret that. So it was incomplete? No, no, no. It was finished when we moved Okay, out. so you, you were there long enough to finish it and then didn't get to enjoy it? Is that it? We pretty much finished it the month before we moved out. <laughs> oh, man. It was such a big project. And to, to be honest, to finish it in the time we did was nothing short of a small miracle. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I distinctly remember this, actually. We went to live with Catherine's mum for a bit, who lived a few miles down the road. And uh, we woke up on the morning of Brexit. We'd just completed on the house sale at 9am. That was when the house sale completed. And we woke up that same morning, having been going crazy to get it all done the night before. Uh and they were like, right, well, Britain voted to leave. More about your life is gonna about to change, right? I didn't know it quite at that point, but um, we we closed on our London house. I think about six weeks later, so we we st we lived in Nor in Norwich for another six weeks and moved to London. And I was doing probably two or three days a week in London at that point, like staying in Airbnbs and stuff like that. So I was traveling a lot. I was on the road a lot. I was just too busy to really care. 
Anyway, we bought this house in London, which was great. It was in Lewisham, 25 minutes to the city, which is where the offices were. Come out of Cannon Street, cross the road, and you're right, right in front of you, for those that know London. Um, in fact, it's the same building as they filmed some of Johnny English in. Okay. Random factoid. All right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, so we, as part of this productionization plan, ended up, uh, Docker productionization plan, ended up POCing, uh, doing proof of concepts on a bunch of different containerization orchestrators. So we looked at Mesosphere, uh, Docker Data Center, Kubernetes, of course, and also Red Hat's OpenShift. Okay. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we implemented, we, we picked and implemented OpenShift because it was at that point the most mature and it was Red Hat. Nobody ever got fired for buying Red Hat, right? That was kind of one of the things that really drew us to it. It was just an old saying in the old days nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. That's kind of, and, and now, of course, there's a modern version. That is so ironic that my boss back then said that to me because obviously now Red Hat's been purchased uh, right. by <laughs> IBM. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't know this. Anyway, so we, we got this uh, platform built and almost into production. But then I, I ended up, um, one, of the, one of the guys on the project with me left, uh, David, his name is, who now incidentally also works for Red Hat. Uh, and David was a, a wonderful guy to work with. He was another one of these, like, Stephen characters in my life. Real mentor. I don't know if he knows I think this about him, but I think incredibly highly of this guy. Um, he just is one of those you go to with any question on any topic, and he just knows the answer. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be about a reverse proxy, or it could be about Primus, right? This guy just knows a lot about a lot super smart guy a good mentor to have yeah so thank you david if you are listening to this uh, for anything that you contributed to my life um so david left and i found it really hard after he left um to be honest with you because i ended up he was the senior on the team i ended up kind of having to try and fill his shoes and always felt a bit imposter syndrome about doing so because i in my mind i'm still this idiot that works right. behind the genius bar that i is, think we all feel that way it's brand right? new to linux right <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. what on earth am i doing running this platform um for a massive company in london but that was what i did for a little bit um but as part of the proof of concept stuff we did with red hat um we worked with some of the uh consultants and so i just don't know we went out i went out for a drink with one of them and just sort of said nah, i'm not super happy now david's left and i think i'd like to uh consider my next step so I submitted my, he referred me and I submitted my CV to go and be a consultant for Red Hat in, in England and somehow they offered me a job. I still, <laughs> you're still not sure how these things happen. I still right? don't know quite how that works, but that's how I ended up at Red Hat. So I, I did uh, a bunch of consultants, uh, consultancy projects for Red Hat in England for a little while. But whilst that was all going on, I don't know if there's a theme here, but I, I tend to do more than one thing at once. I know this of you. <laughs> Uh, whilst that was all going on, um, I'd started applying for my social security number in the in the US. Why specifically? Like, what was the impetus to do Brexit? Oh, so you were thinking in the back of your mind, okay, well, maybe I need a backup plan. Well, I am a US citizen. I'm a dual citizen, so I have both British because of my parents, but I was born here in America. Oh, really? Um, on Long Island, same hospital as Mariah Carey, <laughs> actually. <laughs> all right. So this is where I get my boobs from. <laughs> They hand them out. 
they hand them out at that hospital. Um, so babies born here now get social security numbers at birth. But you had to apply for it. But 30 years ago, oh. we didn't. And so I actually didn't think for the longest time that my citizenship was real. Like I had a US passport for when I was a baby where I was a little smudge on the camera. Um, but whilst I was doing my genius training for Apple in London uh, in 2011, I guess, it was the same year I got married, so we were staying in Grosvenor Square, which is opposite the US Embassy. And I was opposite the US Embassy for long enough that it got my brain thinking, well, why don't I just reapply? What's the worst that happens? They say no. Right. So I did, and they gave me a passport. And I was like, ah, oh, look at that. <laughs> this is real. <laughs> and then it dawned on me over the following few years that I could just go. It may sound stupid to you any, and anybody listening that a citizen of a country doesn't realize that they can just go. Well, it sounds like you didn't really relate to the fact that you were indeed a dual citizen. No, not at all. It was kind of a fun party, you know, factoid about Alex. But right, but that you never really used. No. Um, I mean, my parents are both British. I'd lived in England all my life, so far as, apart from when I was age three. Uh, all my life, as far as I can, I went to school there, I went to university there, I met my wife there, I got married there. Like, I that am home. Yeah. British. Yeah. You can hear in my voice, I am clearly British. What? No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I don't know, after Brexit, kind of everything changed. Uh, it sounds really cheesy, I guess, to say that, but... Can you dig into that a little bit? Why did it change? Was it was there a, a level of fear there for the security that you had? Or, or is it more that you just got curious about other places because you felt like home was changing? I think I thought more highly of England mm. than the Brexit result led me to feel afterwards. And I've given this, this topic so much thought. Uh, it actually impacted the relationship with my dad and I significantly for a little while because oh. he voted one way, I voted the other. And we had to re kind of work really hard to redefine and reconcile that difference, actually. And that was one of the things that really annoyed me the most about Brexit is that it, it was so divisive and there just is no middle ground. Yeah, it's strangely polarizing. Yeah. It's not like a typical election where some of your thoughts are right wing and some of your thoughts are left wing. And generally speaking, I end up in the middle. It's Brexit is, well, do you want to be in this club or not? What a question. And without you know, getting into the actual political side of things. Um, people often say to me that, oh, you're, you know, you're leaving Britain to where Trump's president. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's accurate. But Trump's only temporary. Like, he is officially, uh, ha has a maximum term of eight years as it stands today. So that's the worst case scenario. That is the worst case scenario. Now I know that somebody can do a lot of damage in eight years, four years, eight years, whatever he gets. Um, but I also think that the political climate that created Brexit is also responsible for Trump. This whole Cambridge Analytica, insidious data collection, metadata collection, people saying, oh, I've got nothing to hide. So sure, you can, you know, have a look through my emails. Mm -hmm. That's fine. This is the out. This is this is the, the result of that kind of initial Internet privacy, people not fully understanding the implications of sharing so much. Some say that has implications in Brexit as well. Yeah, completely. There's a movie with, uh, what's his name? It's Sherlock. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, Sherlock. Where he, <laughs> yeah, where he, uh, he plays the spin doctor for the Leave campaign. And he actively targets demographics that nobody's ever targeted before 
simply by having access to the Cambridge Analytica database. It's scary, isn't it? It's scary enough that I think it must be true. So use that and tell me a little bit more about, for you, emotionally, what, what it was about making that decision to look elsewhere. In the end, it didn't actually feel like much of a decision. It wasn't, it wasn't like one day I woke up and I was like, right, I'm done with England. Catherine and I often say to each other that we would prefer to have regretted going and hating it, maybe, or not. We'd rather regret having gone than regret having never done it at all. And that's it. People often ask me, why did you do it? And I sort of flippantly reply, because I can. But that's actually the truth, you know? Well, I'd imagine that once you made the decision that it was even possible that how could your sense of adventure not want to grapple onto this sort of adventure, right? Especially that the employer at the time for you was a little bit all over the world. Yeah, Red Hat, right. And so I was a consultant, actually, rather ironically, working on a Brexit project. (laughs) No way. Come on, really? For the UK government, yeah. Um, I I can't say anything about that, but uh, (laughs) non-disclosures being what they are. But it was enough that sort of made me think, twice about where things were going Mm -hmm. then we took a holiday a vacation to california and did a massive like two or three week road trip our first real big american adventure and this was just to get a feel for it It, i found a cheap flight to la and that was that was how that whole (laughs) whole vacation started and uh, we literally had a flight into la and out of vegas and the rest was kind of just an open book yeah yeah just a blank page just a road trip so yeah we we landed in LA and had a wonderful two and a half three week vacation and you know we didn't really think we'd end up living here and we never really set out to take that holiday and live here it was just there was a cheap flight to America we'd never been to the Grand Canyon or San Francisco or whatever it was and uh, we thought yeah screw it let's go let's do it and then we got back and we were both like, that was really cool. America's pretty, it's all right. I could, I could live there. And so I applied for my social security number, which took about nine months to come through. A short time. I'd almost forgotten. I'd applied for it. And then it came through in April or May last year. And it landed on my desk. I'd had a really terrible day. And I looked at it and went, all right, let's do it. Catherine, do you want to do this? And she was like, yeah. In September, I emigrated. That was as fast as it happened. That's ridiculous. Honestly, it was ridiculous. <laughs> we we had a already had a two-week uh, vacation booked to America. And then Chris said, I'm going to Texas, Linux Fest. Uh-huh. And that was the day we were flying home from Denver. So I said to my boss, oh, you know that two-week holiday I've just booked? I'm leaving, number one. But number two, can I make it into a three-week vacation because we're going house hunting in America? <laughs> And he was like, okay. <laughs> he was not pleased with me. Right. Anyway, so we took a three-week road trip. We drove up from Orlando through Raleigh up to Washington, down through Asheville. Wow. Uh, across to Austin and then up to Denver. And we did like 5,000 miles in three weeks. Quite the tour. <laughs> yeah, but I got to meet Chris for the first time. That was fun. I actually was interviewing for a position at Red Hat in Raleigh at that point, which is the job I am doing now. And we were looking around the different neighborhoods, seeing what, what our money would buy us in Raleigh versus what it bought us in London, and then trying to figure out if we could live 
in any of those places. Our shortlist was uh, Raleigh, Austin, and Denver. Right. Here you are in Raleigh. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't have... It's weird. Like, I wouldn't... Like, on paper, Raleigh's not the one you'd pick. But having lived there for almost a year now, I I just find it really... It's just easy. Easy. I've learned that every single place, you know, I travel quite a bit, as you know. Yeah. Um, I found that every single place has something. You just have to open your eyes enough to see it. And yeah. uh, sometimes, you know, when we just drive across the country, you might you might miss that kind of stuff. But if you give a place a chance, uh, most places have something. Well, as you've heard, I like to move around. No way. Uh, I mean, just, just since I picked up Linux six years ago, I've had one, two, three, four, five houses. You change houses as much as you change distros or what? Yeah. No, I love Arch. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and yeah, Raleigh, like, it's weird because it doesn't have any natural features. I mean, you look out the window here to the right, there's some beautiful mountains one way mm-hmm. and a few miles the other way, there's the Pacific Ocean. Like this is on paper where Alex should be because he loves mountains, he loves ocean, he loves being outdoors. But Raleigh is three hours to the coast one way and three hours to the mountains the other. And yet there's something about being in a completely alien climate, which North Carolina is to me. Every day is over 30 Celsius in the summer. Right. What's that? 90 something uh, in freedom units. (laughs) And um, I can't, I can't put my finger on why it is I like Riley so much, but I just do. I think maybe it's the things it doesn't have rather than the things it does have. Like gray clouds most of the time? Yeah. It doesn't have, <laughs> it doesn't have huge lines whenever you want to do anything. Oh. It doesn't have really bad traffic. It doesn't have um, a massive airport that takes an hour to get in and out of. So you mentioned everything's just a little bit easier. Everything. And so did you find that with everything being easier in your lifestyle, that other things came easier to you, like productivity or, or creativity even? Because I know you tinker with a whole lot of different things. Yeah, so if you look at my contributions to JB over the last 12 months, they've gone from casually joining LUP on mm-hmm. a Tuesday at 10 p.m. in London, when I wasn't absolutely shattered, to joining LUP every week as a regular. Uh, Pretty quickly. And then... You know, not commuting for a few hours every week gave me that time to commit to JB, to commit to doing projects and stuff like that. Because one of the things I think that's gotten me into this position with doing self-hosted was a talk I gave at Linux Fest Northwest this year. Which I hear, I missed, but I hear was really fascinating. It was uh, well attended. I mean, I can't speak as to whether it was interesting or not. I mean, I found it interesting, (laughs) but... It was about doing um, a set of, using some of the skills I'd learned doing drone racing, you know, soldering really small electronic components together. A friend of mine decided he wanted to have some smart LEDs on his Christmas tree using a Node MCU, which is an Arduino kind of compatible ESP8266 chip. And this thing, um, you flash an open source firmware to it with the uh, Arduino IDE, and that's it, really. That, that was all the talk was about, was how to do some of the, like, uh, smart, some of the, some of the more simple smart home stuff, but entirely self-hosted. Yourself, yeah. But not, not being reliant upon Google or Amazon or Nest. Or, or who, internet, really. Or internet at all. Yeah. You're right. So if you're, 
you know, if you're um, maybe in the country a little bit, you can still participate in some of these really amazing technologies without yeah. like fast internet speeds or or really reliable internet. Um, I know all over the world, there's there's lots of people doing cool stuff offline. Everything stays on your LAN. And I really like that. Remember the privacy, the whole privacy thing that we talked about with yeah. Cambridge Analytica? Yeah. I'm not sure what a government would do with my thermostat data, but I'm sure there's someone somewhere that would sell me something based on my heating and cooling preferences. Well, I think that's part of the part of what's really fascinating about this area that's changing quickly is that we just don't quite know yet. And so it's been leaning on the permissive side, which is everybody gets everything. Yeah. And yet we don't even really understand the implications of that. We're seeing hints, you know, you mentioned Cambridge and Analytica and, and the U.S. elections and stuff like that. And we're seeing, you know, how many data breaches every single day. Um, but I feel like even for those of us who are well educated in that sphere, um, we don't really have a sense of how it's changing society completely, you know. And so this self-hosted stuff, I think, is a reminder that we still can have some authority with our own data our own tools i guess it's my reaction to having things so fundamentally change my life that i couldn't control but there's some ties here right like moving here is a way that you gained a little bit of control you said no no this is my decision i guess so i mean for the first time i live in a house that is fully detached that has a driveway that has its own garage i've never lived in a, a house that has any of those things before and not having to listen to my neighbors eastenders tv show through the wall every night as i go to sleep right. is is liberating quite honestly and would you say this is for the first time you're self-hosting the most things you've ever self-hosted well i mean linux server um has meant that i host a lot of services i don't necessarily use but now i'm hosting more services than ever before that i actually use and i'm putting stuff like monitoring in place to ensure that it stays up because uh, i mean it was a bit too much like work before, but now with the show and everything, I have a good reason to do a lot of this stuff because like spreading this kind of, I suppose it's a gospel of self-hosted um, thinking is like some of it's a discovery aspect. Some of it is, I just get so darned excited about this stuff. I want everybody else to be as excited as me. I think that's the right metric that you're on point with something that is really important is... If you can't control your excitement about it and you'll stay up all night working on it, yep. um, keep going down that rabbit hole, right? It's worked well for me so far. That, that was certainly how GPU pass-through was to begin with. That's how Docker was to begin with. And that's that's you know generally how I get interested in stuff. So you it know? sounds like a lot of the major changes in the way you understand how to compute even were geared from just getting super curious and, and um, adventurous and probably over-dedicated to projects, side projects. Solving a real problem. That's exactly where self-hosted is the best, mm -hmm. is if you can solve your own problem, but also change the way you start thinking about the world of computers, what better education is that? I don't think there is. If you're solving a real problem, and you have put all the nuts and bolts in place to solve that problem, you feel real ownership over that solution. And so when it breaks, oh, it's, um, <laughs> as it as it probably inevitably will, right? Well, I mean, I built it, so of course it's going to break at some point. <laughs> or you then change well, a bunch of, bunch of things you don't understand. <laughs> so here's here's one thing that's worth considering when self-hosting. You generally pay a company for a product. Let's say a thermostat in this point. 
And that thermostat talks back to a cloud server because it's recording metrics like temperature and humidity and when you last turned it on and changed it to, from hot to cold and all that kind of stuff. Those servers are maintained by somebody and you've paid for that maintenance as part of the purchase price of the product or through selling that, inf- that company being able to sell that information to mm-hmm. somebody else. Now, when you bring something self-hosted, there isn't, the only person's expertise you can leverage is your own. But also the communities. Well, right. And, and this, this, for me, is where self-hosted as a show really fits in, is Chris and I, and you know you when you're on the show, and, and Drew, and Cheese, and all these other guys. Wes, that, of course. Oh, right. of course, Wes, geez, yeah. Uh, this collective of JB crew have learned a lot of these lessons through experience and through screwing up tinkering yeah and i i i admit that part of the process of learning to self-host is screwing up and having your family text you at 2 a.m saying where is my plex you know server and you think oh god not isn't again. that motivation right <laughs> yeah how can i stop this happening next time so for me the latest example of that is i've just put a status page up so my family if a stream fails they don't text me first they go to this website first and if i have a message on there saying like i'm doing maintenance on the server because obviously time zones and stuff now it's a bit difficult for me to find a, mm. a time uh it's it's trying to solve these problems in a way that is sustainable for me but also uh in a way that others can benefit from and one of the main goals of linux server really was to spread that gospel and i see self-hosted as a, a continuation of that the growth of it yeah, you know, that Stephen guy who um, helped me out in Atlanta, he said the only payment he ever wanted was me to pay it forward. You know, when when you're in, uh, he, he said, when you're in some cushy IT job in 10 years' time, which I never thought would happen, um, he said, you know, just all I ask is that you do this for somebody else. You change someone else's life by giving them that, opening that door, giving them that technology. And for me, I honestly have tried to do that pretty much ever since I've been able to communicate on the internet, write a blog, whatever it is, a podcast, whatever whatever it is. So yeah, that that's why I do the, do all this. Was that was that for you the original impetus for writing the technical blogs that you do? Yeah, he and I collaborated oh, on Oh really? Okay. It was basically gonna be a text document that I was writing. And I thought, well, why don't I put this somewhere public? Share it. Like, here are the commands I ran to compile a kernel. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was the that was as complicated as it got. Why? But then I started thinking, well, why did why why might people want to compile a kernel? So then I write a little exposition at the top. Then I give them the meat and potatoes, and then a little summary at the end to say, well, well done, kids. Now we have a custom kernel. Here's what you can do with it. On to the next uh, step. Yeah, and then it kind of manifested into this whole perfect media server guide eventually in 2016 which is now a, a most, mostly annual thing. I've done three different versions of that now. And a relatively famous blog post. <laughs> we, was, we sat down with Drew the other day, and he was like, I, I showed him the post and uh, before we recorded a self-hosted episode. And uh, he was like, I've read this post before. And Drew and I only met in April, right. so it's not possible that he read it between now and then. And he was like, this post is the reason why I set my server up the way I did. And I was just like, just felt such a warm glow from that single comment and i know there's other people out there that have have done that because they message me on twitter and stuff like that saying thank you and it's just wonderful like i don't 
I'm not like, um, I'm not seeking that. I'm literally just trying to say, look, here's, here's the way I do it. Here are the reasons why I did it this way. Maybe you might do it that way too. I, I imagine for you that feels like validation that you're actually upholding this contract that you and Stephen quasi so. put in place, right? Which is, yeah. that's proof that you're paying it forward and sharing your knowledge and helping others grow. I mean, what, if you look at everything as that Drew has done since reading that and his growth trajectory. Yeah, we should probably talk to Drew about that. Oh, maybe I will. Yeah, I know as well you do a photo blog. I just like writing. I actually find it pretty <laughs> okay. cathartic. It's not something I really knew about myself until I did it. But, uh, you know, when we take road trips and stuff, like, I need a way, I take so many pictures and I just find, like, Instagram is so impersonal. Yep. Like, people will just, you know, swipe past an image and it's on their screen for a second, maybe two if you're lucky. They might double tap it, so it might be three seconds. You think, well, I hiked for two hours. I waited for the perfect light. I researched what time of year to go to this location to get the fall colors or whatever it was in this particular part of the hemisphere. And like that deserves more than three seconds worth of someone's time. And so for me, I don't bother with Instagram or Flickr or any of these other things, which I possibly should. I, I just write a blog and I put it in a blog and I put some words and some context around the image. And generally speaking, it's, it's just like basic travel writing, but um, it's a nice outlet. I think what's been really neat about it, because you've sent me several articles and uh, it's been neat to sort of live that day, because you often do it per day, to live that day in your shoes and see what you are seeing in your own perspectives of often a backyard for some of our friends who have seen these sites before, but not in the same ways that you have. Yeah, people don't get the British obsession with Walmart. <laughs> Please, um, enlighten us. <laughs> but it's it's weird. You can buy guns in the same place you can buy toilet roll. <laughs> it's an everything store, isn't it? And then you get massive vats of cheese balls and M&M bags as big as your head. Right, that That's peak America right there. That's why it's fascinating to us. You've heard of Florida Man, right? Like Walmart Man is a thing. Like you go to Walmart, you will see things you don't see anywhere else. Right. So, uh, yeah. It was, it's, a, it's a destination in itself. It was fun taking Joe to Walmart this week, every time. <laughs> For that shared obsession. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned writing, and you mentioned photography, and you mentioned drone racing, and you mentioned um, tinkering with soldering little tiny things, yes. and you mentioned you know all of these varied interests. Yeah. What do you think is the string that ties them all together? Uh... Technology. They all have a little bit of that, yeah. Yeah, so um, photography has uh, photography has a whole process you have to follow. You have to understand the exposure, triangles, um, you know, aperture, and you, you know all this, of course, being a photographer too. Um, but there's, there's a whole rabbit hole of, of technical reading you can go down, and you can really hyper-focus and get better than the average person simply by reading and practicing a little bit. I like that aspect of it. Um, drone racing is an interesting one because again, it's, it's really technical. Like you have to understand, I had to learn all about how to solder, 
how how uh, five volts differs from twelve volts, which sounds obvious. Did you learn it the hard way? I did. I let some magic smoke out. <laughs> I did. Luckily, it was like a ten or five dollar circuit board from China, but you know, cheap lesson. Uh, I also set a lipo battery on fire once. That was kind of scary. Uh, so all all these things give you a, fa- a respect for electric electricity. Um, but the thing that ties it all together must be that it's a deeply technical subject that I can just hyper-focus on and learn and learn and learn stuff. Uh, like 3D printing is another one of my hobbies. And that involves a whole bunch of like research on the different filaments and the different nozzles and the different you know retraction parameter that you can use to get a slightly better print result. And Sounds to me like you just love deep dives. Yeah. I just... I just don't like being bored, I think, is what it comes down to. <laughs> I think there's there's actually a, a real gift in being bored in that it forces creativity, right? You get bored, but then all of a sudden you think, well, what can I do with the things around me I'm not currently doing? And it sounds like that's a driving force for you. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate, fortunate enough in my current life to ha- uh, have enough disposable income, enough time um, to, to do a lot of these things. So many people battle on a daily basis just to get to zero, mm. you know, with, with whatever uh, ailments they have, you know, whether it's physical or mental or genetic or whatever it might be, just to get to zero for some people is a real struggle. And I'm fortunate that generally speaking, I, I think I'm, you know, generally healthy. Uh, I don't have, I don't have to struggle just to get to, to zero. So for me, I'm able to explore who I am as a person um, quite, quite deeply because of that. So you've been afforded sort of the stresslessness in your mm-hmm. lifestyle to be able to really dive into the things that make you tick. There, there were periods of my life where I couldn't afford to go to Morrison's and spend twenty pounds on groceries. Uh, Morrison's? Uh, so sorry, it's a British supermarket, <laughs> like right. um, Safeways or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, there have been periods of my life where going shopping for the week on 20 pounds was like living like a king. Um, and I think a lot of those, uh, experiences make me so appreciative of where I am now that, uh, I try my best not to take any of it for granted. There are some days where, where, you you know, you you live a life of privilege and you don't really think about it, but there's a lot of days, you know, like, you know, tomorrow I'm getting on a jet plane and flying halfway across, uh, well, all the way across America there are some people that have never been on an aeroplane. Yeah. And or I've been just, outside their own city. And I just think to myself how incredibly lucky I am to live this life. And I, I try, don't always succeed, but I try to live this kind of just life of try, trying to appreciate what's around me. And yeah, it doesn't always work out. But, but photography is this really interesting way to do that, right? Photography allows you to capture what you're living in a way and bottle it up and share it especially you're adding words to to lots of your photographs right um and i find that to be a real gift that people like you and i um but also people who just have a cell phone in their pocket can capture life around them which is really rich for for i think everyone has a story they can tell and a perspective they can share um and you're sharing some of that Every day you get super jazzed about that. The best camera is the one you have with you. Isn't it? Or 
the several cameras you have with it. You with miss you. 100% of the shots you don't take, Michael Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, like photography for me is a, it's, it's a creative outlet, of course, because you have to do the composition side of things. But there's a technical aspect of photography as well with the editing process and, you know, exposure, triangles and stuff, as I said. But uh, for me, it's a great excuse to just go somewhere. Like when I'm on a, a road trip, you think, oh, it'd be nice to hang around for sunset. But if I do that, then I'm going to get to my hotel when it's dark and blah, 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 blah. Now, if there's a photograph involved, it's worth waiting for. Or if, if, if there isn't a photograph involved, I might just leave a little bit early because it's more convenient. And so for me, it's a great excuse to just stop and slow down. And one of the things that we did on this latest road trip through Yellowstone was I started taking time lapses. Oh. And the reason behind doing that was number one, time lapses are freaking cool. But number two is the minimum number of shots that I tend to take is three to 400 per location. In what span of time? Which is a shot every two seconds, roughly. Okay. So, you know, you think about it as 800 seconds, that's what, nearly 10, 12 minutes? Yeah. Um, and you have to stand in one spot and it could be a really busy crowded tourist spot like overlooking Grand Prismatic Spring and there's people fighting and jostling and you're just stood there with your camera and headphones in or not just in nature just being you're forced to pause for a and moment aren't you? you're forced to pause and you see so many people like do the selfie thing turn around do the selfie thing and then go it's like why did you come up here was it just to get the Instagram picture or the Facebook picture and then go Unfortunately, that's a, a side effect. Drive-by tourism. Right. We all want to collect. Drives me mad, Brent. <laughs> well, that's why you're doing something about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can only influence my, my world, can't I? But uh, again, like, who knows? Maybe by taking a time-lapse and putting it on YouTube, that'll inspire somebody else to do the mm -hmm. same thing. Yeah. You, you, you sometimes never know the inspirations that you send out into the world and who's been affected by it. I mean, you mentioned a few people who you weren't even sure, you know, they've changed your life. And you weren't even sure if they had even it's weird, isn't sort it? of like realized you, that. You don't necessarily realize you're in the good times when you're in them. Because you're in the weeds. Well, yeah, your head's down. You don't have the context of looking back on it and realizing that actually, yes, that was a really productive period. Or maybe it wasn't. But maybe you made some new friends or something. I don't know. What's interesting about that is, well, how do you change it? How do you make sure that you are noticing the good times like i mean for you and i being sitting here in this particular studio yeah which this, this could is a easily pretty good, be described as a good time right? this is a pretty good time right now and i have a, a tasty beverage so do you yeah we're sitting in a studio where we've listened to familiar voices for years and uh so i think are you fangirling right now <laughs> stop it um <laughs> but i think photography is really interesting that way is it forces you in what you were saying with your time lapse it forces you to stop and look around. Um, and if you develop your eye, you also, just by connection, you end up developing your mind too. So yeah. you have to stop, look around, watch people, you know, their expressions. You have to organize your time in a different way. You know, you were mentioning road trips are different for you now when you bring a camera, when you don't bring a camera. Yeah. So for me, that's made life around me so much more rich. Even when I don't have a camera, uh, I find myself curious about people and the way they look and the expressions that they, they make. Um, so I see a huge connection between, for you, photography and your tinkering 
and your different ways of trying to almost make different projects with the same equipment, right? How many times have you reorganized a piece of equipment to try to achieve something new? Yeah, it's, it's, it's right. You know, uh, there's, a, there's a photographer on YouTube that I watch a lot of, a chap called Thomas Heaton. He does a lot of landscape photography, which is an, uh, an area that I'm interested in. And he has this saying of, right, you've, you've rocked up to this beautiful location. The, the natural tendency is to try and get it all in. You know, you've got this wonderful vista in front of you, like maybe it's a mountain range or a lake or whatever whatever it is. And he, he always says at this point, stop. What is it in that scene, not the scene itself, what is it in that scene that you are trying to tell the story of? Is it the beautiful flowers on a lily pad down there? Or is it the wisp of cloud catching a peak up there? Or is it the fact that there's a glacier over there? Or whatever it might be. Don't just... Look at a you know a road going through a, uh, a a mountainside in the fall, or something like maybe it's the the piles of leaves you're trying to or the color or whatever it is like. What story is this image trying to tell? And I find that by simply stopping and doing that when I have my camera in my hand, I end up doing that in normal life as well. Like I'll look around and have this kind of surreal objectiveness to the situation that I'm in right now sometimes it's a bit annoying but <laughs> um, yeah I find that a lot of the skills that I've ended up learning photography being one of them end up impacting how I look at the world in general and I don't know if I'd change that I think that's fascinating how side projects, interests, hobbies can change completely our existence right really it changes your everyday life in ways you can't really imagine i mean i'm quite biased about photography but you're good at it well but i i wasn't well nobody was born good at photography right ansel adams wasn't born good at photography and so i would argue you're great at photography i've loved tons of your photos but we've you know i i like to say that Everybody's just on a different point on the timeline. We work in different spheres, though, as well, don't yeah, we? Yeah. Like, I, I tend to do more landscape and trying to move a little bit more into wildlife and stuff, but that's hard. And you do... Primarily portraits. Yeah. And primarily for hire. And you're a working photographer, whereas I'm just a rich hobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> and, yet we, <laughs> and yet we have all these shared experiences through the craft. It's really uh, yeah, quite fascinating. Yeah, I'm one of those guys with all the gear, but little idea in <laughs> you don't give yourself enough credit you have this wonderful uh just this wonderful way with people though when when you were doing the photo shoot the other day for the, the headshots like just this wonderful like you bring out a, a cheeky little grin in everybody you almost managed it for joe i know not quite I but know. almost <laughs> which is quite a feat and and i think joe loved the process too he told me uh later on that the photo was Fairly okay. And I took that as a real compliment. Jeez. <laughs> Steady on, Joe. <Jack. laughs> and uh, and he, he sent it to his wife right away. So I think that's a real... Well, there you go. Yeah, I know. That's what he really thinks of mm -hmm. it. Um, photography, I don't think I could ever stop doing it. No. For that very reason. Um, and I focus on people. I certainly started with, you know, photographing water and scenes and landscapes and flowers and things like that. Um, it helps that they're inanimate and they don't have emotions. So, but I've learned in the process and you might 
you might jump into this. I've learned in the process that uh, photographing people is just an excuse for me to meet a lot of people and to have conversations with them and to become their friends in five minutes um, because that's what's required to take a good photograph of someone. Well, I think that's you as a person, though. Well, but which came first is my real question. I don't know anybody that doesn't think you're a super great guy, though. <laughs> well, everybody on the team kind of you. loves you. You're a great chef. You're really personable, you know, and a good photographer, too. I can't, I can't blame my food interests on photography, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, maybe not. But I think there's a big part of my personality that... Um, has been developed through photography, and uh, I think that's a real gift. So, so take your hobbies. I think that's the real nugget. Take your hobbies, run with them. Whatever's keeping you super excited. I mean, you mentioned several stories about that. Whatever's keeping you super excited and and really interested in a topic, just run with it. Mm-hmm. I'll take you places you never expected. Please, let's do this another time. This is super fun. Um, I know you and I have so many things in common, so uh, let's do it again and jump into a whole bunch of topics. We need to get off the mic so we can go and fly the drone around a bit, right? Uh, I, I, you know, so I've never had this experience. You're going to teach me something new today. Have you never flown a drone before? I have never flown a drone. That's going to change mm-hmm. in about 10 minutes' time. <laughs> Great, let's go do that. Excellent. Okay. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, this Alex. was fun. Uh, do you want to uh, plug a few things? you want to give us a Linux server, maybe a Twitter or something? Uh, well, mine... Twitter is uh, at Ironic Badger. There's uh, at Linux Server IO, maybe. I don't know. One of those. Uh, and there's, of course, the brand new at Self Hosted Show uh, on Twitter, which uh, is another really exciting project. So, yeah, a bit of a new thing for uh, JB. So, check it out. Thanks, Alex. Mm-hmm.